Welcome back to MERS Monday. For more than 10 years, the Michigan political podcast. Executive Director Edward Woods III of the Michigan Independent Citizens Redistricting Commission believes the commission deserves a little bit more grace as it prepares to redraw seven state house districts due to a federal court ruling that they were racially gerrymandered. He's joined by the commission's litigation counsel, Catherine McKnight. Former Detroit legislator Lamar Lemons III entered the special election race for Michigan's 13th House District because of a shortage of African-American representation in Lansing. However, he feels he's working against himself after the governor endorsed one of his opponents. I'm very disappointed in the governor for endorsing in a Democratic primary. That was always a no-no because it it forces alliances that would not necessarily uh, normally take place. Additionally, Republican U.S. Senate candidate Nikki Snyder, a registered nurse and State Board of Education member, joins the MERS team to preview a candidate forum being hosted by the Northern Michigan Chamber Alliance at their January 19th policy conference. Now here's MERS podcast host Samantha Schreiber and editor Kyle Malin. Thank you so much Mark Bayshore for kicking off today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast. We're recording on a good morning here in Michigan with the sun shining brightly through the zero degrees weather uh, with multiple Michiganders still smiling about the Detroit Lions first playoff win in 32 years against the Los Angeles Rams on Sunday evening. Had to give that a shout out. Uh, But before my social media feed turned into Lions Palooza last night, a routinely looked at story was what is going on with the Michigan Independent Citizens Redistricting Commission? We've had pundits come on to discuss the commission following the ruling by a federal three-judge panel that 13 legislative districts drawn by the commission were racially gerrymandered, violating the U.S. Constitution's Equal Protections Clause. Uh, But today, we are going straight to the source with the commission's litigation counsel, Catherine McKnight, and Edward Woods III, the commission's executive director. Uh, Thank you all for joining us today. Thank you for having us. So, Edward, I'm just going to kick off with you. Last week, the commission set up a game plan for redrawing the seven house districts through the beginning of this year. Could you just give our listeners a summary of what the battle plan is right now and what we can expect to see? Sure. Once again, thanks again, Kyle and Sam, for having us. Starting tomorrow, the commission will be meeting virtually on um, Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday to start mapping um, those seven districts. Um, and a collaborative format. Also, um, prior to doing their work, they will be taking public comment. And once again, that will be Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And then starting next week, we will be in Detroit for at least four days, on the fifth day if necessary, but we'll be in Detroit. We will have evening sessions on Monday and Tuesday, and then on Wednesday, Thursday, and if necessary on Friday, we will be at the Cadillac Place. Tentatively, we're scheduled to be at the um, T- um, it's not the TCF Center, it's not Kobo, but it's Huntington Place, uh, which is the old Kobo, and uh, being there for that. But once that is finalized, we will um, put out a press release and let everyone know. But that's the tentative plan that we have right now. We still have some logistics that we need to get ready. Um, we believe we feel it's necessary to hear from all Detroiters or everyone in Metro Detroit that could be impacted by these districts or even more districts if the commission decides to 
um, move um, to develop maps outside of these seven districts in terms of change to comply um, with the court order. Once again, we're complying with the court order, even though, you know, we filed a stay with the U.S. Supreme Court that Cake is way more better articulated than I am. So we're doing this dual path. And then the final week, we will be back on doing a remote type situation because the maps need to be submitted to the court and posted for the public's consideration by Friday, February 2nd. Um, in that final week, we'll look at um, to sure alignment with the seven rank redistricting criteria. Once again, everything that we do will not be based on race at all whatsoever as directed by the court order. But in that last week, we will look at um, where we are in terms of meeting the seven rank redistricting criteria. I know the court did appoint two special masters. Is the special master at all going to be in the same room as the commission or any of the commissioners going to have conversations with these special masters? Uh, what is going to be their relationship? The special masters work for the court, um, the commission. So they're separate from the commission. Uh, we will not be interfering, calling, consulting, um, none of that whatsoever. Um, as you know, the commission was charged with the tax as a result of proposal um, 2018-02 to draw the maps. And, you know, um, in speaking for the commission, it's kind of disheartening, you know, after one shot, the vitriol and the aggressiveness of whether or not the commission is successful based on one set of maps. And then um, possibly uh, we're grateful that we have the opportunity to do it, but it just seems like, you know, this is the first time that this has been done. And we need to make a distinction. This is not the APOL standards where the commission drew lines based on county, city, and township boundaries. We had to follow the seven ranked redistricting criteria. And so when people say go back to the old way, the old way does not exist by law. And that's just something I think we really want to get out and make sure it's clear. The way things used to be are not the way the commission was um, have the responsibility of doing it now. We are not doing the maps based on county, city, and municipal boundaries, township boundaries. We're doing it based on the seven ranked redistricting criteria. And I think that has created some confusion, you know, for those that are might be used to things in the past or how things were done. But uh, that just wasn't the case for the commission. This is the first time in Michigan's history that it was done this way. And I think the commission deserves a little bit more grace in what I'm seeing as a result coming out the first time, you know, even though we disagree with the court ruling and we're moving forward on a dual track, let's not forget this was the first time that this has been done in the state of Michigan this way. Kate, if I could uh, ask about the appeal, what is the main thrust the redistricting commission is, is going for here with their appeal to the Supreme Court? Right. Okay. So th first of all, thank you for having me. I really appreciate being here with you and Edward today. It's a really important discussion and I'm glad we're having it. So the appeal, let me briefly step back. The appeal, we filed last week a, a notice of the appeal and an application for emergency stay. What you can expect to see on the appeal front is last Thursday, Justice Kavanaugh ordered plaintiffs to file a response to our emergency application for stay by this Wednesday afternoon. So you should hear from plaintiffs by Wednesday afternoon. What we've filed so far is just that emergency application. We have not yet briefed the merits, but to give you a flavor of, of some of the arguments, as you know, the court found in the, the three judge panel found that certain districts violated the equal protection clause, right, of the US Constitution. 
They did not find a violation of the Voting Rights Act. They did not find that the districts disenfranchised anyone or diluted votes. Those are some things we're hearing in the media. That's not what the court found. Instead, the court found that the commission used race in a predominant way when they were drawing the maps. Part of our appeal goes to that finding and says, you know what? Under the Equal Protection Clause, the commission is, cannot draw maps with race predominant in a race predominant way unless the drawing is narrowly tailored to accomplish some other legitimate goal. Here, that legitimate goal was compliance with the Voting Rights Act. Okay. So when you look at the three judge panel's opinion, it's about 114 pages. They only spent about two and a half pages on narrow tailoring, right? So a, a piece of our appeal is really focused on this issue that even if race predominated in the drawing, we believe it was narrowly tailored to satisfy the Voting Rights Act. And we think that the three judge panel gave that short shrift in their 114 page opinion to only spend two and a half pages on narrow tailoring um, that that to us, that doesn't seem proper. And, and that's a that's a good portion of our appeal. Of course, there are other pieces to it. And then there are pieces of it that that don't make sense to necessarily appeal, but that we nonetheless disagree with. Uh, but you'll see that as a, a primary driver of our appeal, this issue of narrow tailoring. And if you can bear with me, the problem is you can see it for map drawers is these, these dual dueling goals. On the one hand, being required by the Voting Rights Act to pay attention to race, and on the other hand, being admonished by the Equal Protection Clause to only pay attention to it in a certain way and in a certain amount. Yeah, and I think that's what was confusing for some people reading it, because the whole point of the redistricting commission and in, in doing and following the Voting Rights Act was to pay attention to race. But then the court comes back and says, well, you focused on race too much. So we're going to throw out these districts. So it, it did seem a little confusing reading it from the outside. And and Kyle, it's a great question because, you know, a, another reason why we're filing the appeal is we don't think the court's guidance is clear, not just from this three-judge panel, but from the Supreme Court. We do not think precedence is clear. More than 50 districts were struck down the, this past decade for being uh, a racial gerrymanders. And, you know, when you're counseling a map drawer on how to comply, it's really tricky. And, and we think that more guidance is necessary, not just for this commission, but for other map drawers and candidly for panels like the three judge panel here that did their best, but we think got it wrong on this one piece. And we think they are owed more, more guidance, more clarity from the Supreme Court. And then one other question I had is why just those seven? Because if you take a look at the other house districts, let's say district five, uh, district 13, they seem like they are drawn the exact same way as district 11, district 12, district 10. Uh, why were those similar districts that seem to be doing the same thing, attaching suburbs to Detroit in a very thin geographical way, why weren't they involved in this as well? Right. That's a good question. Some of this is driven by plaintiffs' choices about which districts they seek to challenge, right? And then there was um, summary judgment was granted as to certain districts. And pardon me, I'm not able to identify them off the cuff right here, whether those the ones you cited are part of that summary judgment or not. But there were some districts that the court already found earlier in the process uh, were, were um, amenable to summary judgment, uh, like on standing issues, that sort of thing, and set them to the side. So you may look at other districts and say, well, what about those? And, and it's a the reason why those aren't at issue here are, are a blend of reasons, either plaintiff's decisions, motion for summary judgment, or otherwise they just weren't at issue. 
You know, I specifically have a question. I would like to hear both Edward and your insights on it, Kate. In the last two weeks, people are starting to question again if the commission is susceptible to the Open Meetings Act. Uh, specifically, last week, retired redistricting professional Bob LeBrant was on our podcast and told us that because the commission has held meetings either completely over Zoom or with multiple members attending through Zoom, as operated in contrary to the Open Meetings Act. However, your explanation is uh, specifically you, Ian Edward, is that the commission does not need to follow this act. Uh, Bob LeBrant says this doesn't make sense. Uh, overall, can you just give us an explanation be of the relationship between the commission and the Open Meetings Act? Thank you, Sam. Uh, based on our local council, general council, because I'm not a lawyer, um, we went through the Constitution, as you know, we shared that the commission is not under the legislature. And I think really this question is really best fit for voters, not politicians, because they're the ones that actually wrote the ballot proposal. But the whole idea, the whole concept was that the commission would be separate from the legislature, not controlled by the legislature or its laws. And so you see it in the Constitution and you also um, see it referenced a little bit in the uh, Michigan Supreme Court case um, from brought by the media in its decision in December about whether about the um, commission not being, you know, under the control of the legislature, which is the Open Meeting Act, which is a legislative law. And so what the commission did is it took a look at the Constitution and established its own rules and procedures. This was done in an open and transparent process. This was not done behind closed doors. There was no closed session. And that's where we are. And so if the legislature was to make a law, um, the question would be, would it be appropriate, you know, as relates to the commission? And um, that has not been decided yet, you know, with regards to that. Um, we do try to let people know when our meetings are. Um, this last particular meeting, um, the delay in terms of being open and transparent was to ensure we had a quorum and that the new commissioners would be able to attend. And so in order for us to know that, we had to, according to our rules and procedures, we had to provide a five-hour notice. And so that's why the notice came out later, because I think we got, I think it was about 9.30, give or take some time, when we knew we had the second um, new commissioner confirmed. And so therefore, we went and set the meeting because we knew we would have a quorum. And then later, the last commissioner confirmed about one o'clock or so. And so that's why everyone was there. So it is not an attempt to evade openness or transparency um, with regards to that, but is an attempt for the commission to follow its rules and procedures as granted um, by the Constitution um, that was passed by Michigan voters in 2018 to the ballot proposal. Um, for the most part, um, and then with regards to that particular date, we knew we had some timelines that we had to get done. And so because we never, as you know, we just approved our regular meeting schedule this last meeting, there were some things that we needed to get done in terms of orientation, knowing that we might have to possibly do maps that we had to get done, that we had to bring them up to speed um, with regards to that. But um, our process, as you know, that was probably the only one meeting that we had with regards to that. So it really wasn't an issue because people weren't really paying attention as much. But as a result of what happened here, I think people did pay attention because it was less than our usual turnaround time for meetings.
Now, you are having some multiple in-person meetings in Detroit for redrawing these seven house maps. Will commissioners still be allowed to participate in those over Zoom? Um, yes, because that's a part of our rules and procedures. However, we are encouraging all of our commissioners as much as possible to be there in person. And uh, we expect that to take place. As of right now, I'm only um, aware of two that um, that might be doing it remotely, but the other nine, um, I'm sorry, the other 11 are planning to be there in person. And if they can, or if, if not, they'll be there later that day. Some have appointments that they're unable to move around. But, you know, just so that I can understand the morale that went into permitting Zoom attendance and participation, I mean, why does the commission feel that that's beneficial and not that it should be required that everyone's there in person Everyone proves that they're actually in the state of Michigan and you have that in-person connectivity with one another. Well, when you know when we moved to the um, Zoom, we weren't meeting as much. So it really became a cost factor. Um, if you look at it, we pay, um, let's just say 700 bucks per meeting. And that's morning for closed caption and sign language interpreters. So it's actually cheaper for us. We're not doing as much to meet on Zoom versus bringing everybody to Lansing or Detroit, which is the two common places where we had our meeting, um, depending on how far they come, putting them up overnight, and then um, you know doing their per diem. And so if you look at the mapping phase, when we started to go out for public hearings and doing that, most of all of that was done in person. You know, those that couldn't come for whatever reason, you know, they had, had to state that, which were both medical reasons that were shared why they were un unable to come. But our whole intent, you know, the intent from day one was to actually meet in person. We just had some who had some medical reasons where they were unable to attend and um, they were accommodated by participating through Zoom. But obviously in the commission has gone on record that the camaraderie getting together, you know, is best achieved when we're um, all in the same room. And um, unfortunately that didn't happen for some of our commissioners. Edward, the, the entire redistricting commission has never been together in one room at one time, correct? All 13 members? Yes. Not that I'm aware of. I mean, that's kind of weird, isn't it? I mean, you guys have been in existence since 2021, and you've had dozens of meetings, and yet you've never all been in one place at one time. That is correct, Kyle. I mean, for our listeners, I mean, I mean just kind of justify that. It's just weird. Well, once again, you know, we had some people who had some medical issues, you know, within our rules with regards to um, posting that. They posted that on the website. And as I shared with you um, earlier, you know, the commission has gone on record from a lesson stern standpoint that it does make a difference when you're not all in the room getting to know each other, bonding like other commissions and other boards do. But um, that's the exception that the commission has put in place for medical reasons. Those reasons, those letters are posted on our website for the commissions that submitted for the commission members that submitted them. And then I've got a, um, a question for Kate then. Um, as you all are preparing for this appeal, uh, I, don't I put it this way, how much confidence do you have in uh, Mr. Edelson's arguments in, in how he constructed this whole 35, 45% uh, limitation or barriers on how much uh, uh, minorities should be within a district? 
Well, I think that's part of the, you know, that's part of this process. Um, and I, I, what's interesting is that the court did not find that that violated the Voting Rights Act, that that, that range. And what came out of trial was that it was a range, that it was not some fixed target, that there were districts drawn above that. They weren't, you know, it was not some hard and fast rule. The reason that's important is a lot of other cases that find violations of the Voting Rights Act are where you have some fixed target that's immovable. And that, that's not what was going on here. Um, so we are now in this remedial phase. We have the appeal, you know, it's dual track. We have the appeal going on, focused on appeal issues. And then in the remedy phase, what we're tasked with doing is complying with the court's order. The court order does not focus on, on ranges. Uh, it focus on, focuses on um, drawing in a way that is predominant predominant in its use of race, right? So that's why you're seeing a protocol of sorts uh, being applied by the commission uh, in their drawing of the map to, to not have not use racial data. Instead, draw the maps not using racial data, and then only after they're drawn, apply a Voting Rights Act compliance check. Okay. So the problem in, in all of this was that the um, the racial demographic was at the forefront and it shouldn't necessarily be at the forefront. It's only after you draw the maps that you take a look and say, OK, how are we doing with this? And if we got to move things around a little bit, then that's when we should pay attention. Well, that's a great question, Kyle, because I think that, you know, the the problem that the court identified was that the, the commission used race in a predominant way and then found in those two and a half pages I described earlier that it did so without narrow tailoring. Right. So it, it's it's OK to use race in a predominant way as long as right you can prove that it was done in a really narrow, t narrowly tailored way to comply with this other federal statute or federal law, which is the Voting Rights Act. So, you know, in, in the appeal, the focus, and I'm sorry, in the remedy, um, one way to handle that, and we've seen special masters in past cases apply this sort of protocol, is to go in and say, okay, let's not risk anyone thinking that we're even allowing race to predominate. Let's take it off the table, draw the districts without race data, and then bring it back on the table to focus on Voting Rights Act compliance, because that's the only way only reason we're entitled to look at race at all is in order to comply with the Voting Rights Act. So I want to make sure that's clear to your listeners that this is not a race blind process through and through. No, this is a protocol that is trying to address the court's concern about race predominant map drawing, but ensure that race is considered for compliance with the Voting Rights Act after the maps are drawn. It's a way to address this concern about predominance. I know that we're at time now, but I do have a question for Edward. What can we as listeners expect to be the commission's timeline when it comes to redrawing the Senate districts? I know that senators are up for re-election in 2026. That's when those elections will be held. Um, what is your game plan for redrawing those? Thank you, Sam. That's um, actually going to be an issue ordered by the court. So right now we get the house. I think they gave us a date. Kate, you could probably speak to it, but I think it was April and we we're going to get some direction from them um, with regards to the Senate. As you know, there's not going to be a special Senate election this year. And so that will come from the court. And I think they probably, you know, get the house done, get it completed, get it to the secretary of state so we can move the process along to have elections in 2024 for the house, which is every two years, which is a normal process. And then we would address the Senate. But um, one of the things that I think is important is that we have to remember what this is, what this seems to be all about. You know, the whole idea was to have a process done by citizens to make um, 
common sense decisions and not be done in a partisan way because Michigan had one of the most gerrymandered st- um, maps in the state. And I think, and you know, in honor of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the whole idea behind the commission um, is basically summed up in his quote um, from I've Been to the Mountaintop, which was delivered April 3rd, 1968, the last um, um, speech he delivered at Mason Temple um, Church of God in Christ headquarters in Memphis, Tennessee. And the quote is, let us develop a kind of dangerous unselfishness. And this whole process was to be unselfish um, through a bipartisan commission um, affiliated with Democrats, affiliated with Republicans, affiliated independent to ensure a fair democracy for everyone. And um, I think this is what the commission's committed to doing. Matter of fact, I know that's what the commission's committed to doing. And despite this um, court ruling, the resolve is still the same to draw fair maps for citizen input. And I'm excited about democracy. Um, I'm excited that people are seeing what what the real actors are, you know, in terms of who's funding the plaintiff's counsel and uh, the sampling of people who the plaintiff has chosen. There's not even a representative sample, but the people that they've selected doesn't necessarily mean it's a representative sample of Detroit. I'm happy that that, you know, is out there because you're seeing different comments, even on our own YouTube channel. If you look at our meetings, you're seeing comments from other Detroiters who don't feel the same way as the Detroiters that are aligned with the plaintiff's counsel. And so I'm really excited about this opportunity for democracy here in Michigan and making sure that it's a dangerous, as develop a kind of dangerous and selfishness so it's inclusive of everyone um, to in this redistricting process. So really excited about the opportunity that this commission has uh, moving forward. Everybody, that is the Commission's Litigation Council, Catherine McKnight and Edward Woods III, the Commission's Executive Director. Thank you all so much for joining us on today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you. us for this segment of the MERS Monday podcast, which we are pre-recording on January 12th via Zoom, is Lamar Lemons III. He is a Detroit Democrat who, after serving in the State House from 1999 through 2007 as a second-generation lawmaker, filling the role as the House Black Caucus floor leader at the time, is running again in Michigan's special primary election in the 13th House District, covering Warren and a fragment of Detroit. I think it's important to give our listeners the compacted timeline of these special elections. The governor called a special election on November 22nd after then-state rep Lori Stone vacated the seat when she was sworn in as Warren City Mayor. The filing deadline was 4 p.m. on November 27th, the Monday following that Thanksgiving weekend, right after she announced the special elections. And the primary itself will be taking place at the end of of this month on January 30th. Uh, Lamar, thank you for joining us. And I just want to kick off. You weren't initially planning on running in this seat if Lori Stone was elected as mayor. So how did you get into this arena? Well, uh, there's a, a shortage of African-American representation in Lansing. Our numbers are down. Um, as you mentioned, I'm a former legislator. You, you say I'm a second generation uh, legislator. My father served after me. We served one term together, and then he served after me. I predated uh, my father in the in the legislature just for that, uh, and and in politics in general. 
But anyway, I wasn't running and our issues were not being addressed and there's no institutional memory. So that's why um, it's important um, that uh, we have not only African-American representation, but the right African-American representation who is familiar with the process. I decided that I knew that I can hit the ground running. I'm not that far removed from working in the process as I was the chief of staff of the state center for uh, four years in 2022 and the four years preceding that. So I'm familiar even with the more contemporary uh, actions uh, taken by the the legislature. So I do just kind of want to confirm these dates. So you found out when the special election was going to be held on November 22nd, right before Thanksgiving weekend, and then ultimately was informed that you had until that following Monday, November 27th, to file by 4 p.m. Did it almost feel for you personally with that timeline that these races were already decided, that the preferred candidates were already lined up and ready to go? Not only do I feel that, they've done some things that were unprecedented. I'm very disappointed in the governor for endorsing in a Democratic primary. That was, that was always a no-no because it, you, it, it forces uh, alliances that would not necessarily uh, normally take place when you are trying to pick and choose among your party members who would be the uh, individuals best suited to provide the check and balance that the uh, state legislature is supposed to do. So if the governor is picking the legislature uh, members in the primary, not just supporting the, the members of their party, as we, uh, uh, as both uh, myself and the other two good Democrats are, who are running in my primary, then, then you're, uh, you're establishing a precedent that will uh, could actually blow up uh, in the future. And they will always cite this precedent where uh, the governor weighed in uh, and stacked the deck. And, and despite that, she very well may not uh, prevail. And I've been along, I feel like I'm working against myself in that I worked real hard to get the governor elected only to have that same governor. And I can tell you unequivocally, I worked harder than any other uh, of my opponents to get the governor elected and had far more influence in the process in assisting uh, the governor getting elected, only to have that same governor turn around and use her resources to pick someone who is perhaps more malleable, who is far uh, less experienced and has no institutional memory. So you, it's just a feeling on your part that you feel like the governor stacked the deck for people that she wanted to fill those seats. No, it's not a feeling. The governor, I live in a district, the governor, I have received 11 pieces of mailing from my uh, my principal opponent. And all of them, many of them highlight the governor. As a matter of fact, the governor's picture is more prominent than the candidate. But uh, as far as your campaign, then, what are you doing to try and, and get those votes? Because these districts are not advantageous for a Detroit candidate like yourself. I would not say they're not advantageous for me. Here's uh, here's the counting, which is why I even watch how they're trying to, they realize that too, so they're reaching out to the African-American community. The district has a African-American base of only 35%. That includes both Warren and Detroit. Uh, however, we are 90% Democrats. 
The other part portion of the district uh, of the white or European or whatever choose, uh, you choose and, and non-African-American are heavily uh, represented by Republicans, 60-40 in favor of the Republicans. So the actual numbers of black Democrats in a Democratic primary actually are in my favor should all the, Demo- uh, should all the African-Americans vote for me. So what are you doing to get the word out and campaign in in this compressed time schedule here? I mean, what are we, I mean, we're talking like 20 days here, less than that now. Yeah. Yeah. We we only have about two weeks. We are uh, going door to door and we are um, making the phone calls and uh, we're working on a shoestring budget, but shoe leather has been proven to outperform money. Well, and our listeners should be reminded that uh, you were the brains behind the operation of the Betty Jean Alexander victory against uh, David Knizik. So uh, you have proven that it's possible before. In the, in the House, I'm the brains and the person who recruited Kimberly Edwards. That's that's me, 100%. That was you? That was me, Kimberly Edwards. Oh, I running. I recruited her the day before the filing deadline. Did not know her. Assessed her name and gender only and my abilities. That's why she's there. And she beats uh, Steenland in, in the primary. And that was that was all you. I never put that together. Yep, that was all me. That was the, um, I orchestrated that. That's why they're spending so much because they didn't see that one coming. Uh, like Betty Jean, no one knew. They thought, quote, she, they, they were nobodies. They didn't know mine. So, but when I run, they know it's me. So I, I dare say my opponent has uh, spent an unprecedented amount of money. That's the other reason I know. Unprecedented amount of money and resources. It's unprecedented. So I'm very disappointed because this is not how we're supposed to operate. They're changing the rules. So I want to ask one more elections question, and then I want to get over to policies. Uh, But in the case where you don't win this January 30th primary, uh, do you plan on running again the 2024 elections? Do you feel determined to get back into the legislature to bring that black representation back to the table? It depends. If there there may be other uh, African American with some time, I can recruit uh, some other African Americans and could uh, orchestrate uh, their their victory. So, if for some reason I don't prevail in this endeavor, I'll be I'll be back behind the scenes working um, with other candidates in all probability. Lamar, I wanted to ask your opinion on the redistricting lawsuit that uh, the judges came back with, said these districts need to be redrawn. Uh, First of all, I wanted to get your reaction to their their ruling and the redistricting commission having to go back to the drawing board on um, at least seven of the state house districts. Well, uh, according to the uh, secretary uh, of state and the election commission, they had me declare or attempted several times in the case they had me declared an expert witness, and we were able to have me just be a witness for. And so I would testify in favor of the lines being redrawn. In fact, I was probably the principal witness myself and actually my campaign manager, Virgil Smith, were the two individuals who, whose um, testimony as former lawmakers uh, they used to help. So we were instrumental in getting this done. And what was your what was your when, when the redistricting commission drew up Detroit, Metro Detroit like a pizza pie? What why do you what do you think was the main motivation behind it? Now, I think that actually, and I'm almost 100 percent sure that the um, that the there were people who were supposed to be 
independent, but they were actually Democrats. And so for the Democrats to get this historic majority, they had to come into the loyal Black Democratic base and cut it up in such a way to give them a majority. And by the way, I did, I was uh, also disheartened to see uh, that the Democratic Party weighed in again for European American or white American against uh, the, a, a black person seeking an open seat in the person of Kleinfeld. So not only did they draw the lines, but then they weighed in to make sure, because again, with the African American population being so loyal and democratic. And by the way, the only reason you have Hertel and the only reason you have Kleinfeld are the black populations of Harper Woods, East Point, and Detroit, respectively. You take Detroit out of a Kleinfeld, she loses. You take Harper Woods, which is now a black city, out of uh, Hertel, he loses. And they haven't, uh, and watching their policies and their hiring on their staffs, they haven't even seen to acknowledge uh, that, that key issue. So if you look at the Senate map, and that's going to have to be redrawn, uh, when that's redrawn, that's uh, going to be very difficult for Democrats to retain the majority in the Senate, isn't it? Because of Kleinfeld and Hertel, as you mentioned, because those districts are going to have to be redrawn. But it can be drawn in such a way to uh, to appease. I believe they can be drawn in such a way um, because what we're asking is 51 percent for our districts. Um, 51 percent black voters. Right. We don't want to be compacted as the Republicans would have us. And we don't want to be diluted as the Democrats have, especially as the Democrats have not shown a willingness to work uh, anywhere near a black agenda. And they they deliberately um, place strategic Black folks who support a corporatist agenda and go along with the uh, corporate agenda, even though they may be uh, Black in skin. So I'm ready to kind of dive into the policies, though, now. And I just want to reiterate that after the November 2022 election, the first election with, well, the first election cycle with these new maps, the Michigan House went from having 15 Black representatives to 13, and the Senate went from having five Black lawmakers to three, uh, with no Black males present in the Senate chamber. Now, I want to ask you, how do you feel like this has impacted policy? What are some proposals that you thought a Democratic legislature could get done, but haven't gotten done, and you might feel it could be because of that lack of Black representation? Absolutely. It is not only the lack of Black uh, representation, but uh, but Black uh, representation that is uh, reflective of the agenda that we in Detroit would want. Number one would be the insurance. I advised, uh, out of trust again, for the governor, I advised uh, Senator uh, Betty Jean Alexander to support the insurance as a first step to ensure to support the insurance bill. The no. 2019 reform, correct? Yes, the 2019 reform. And so, and it was a very slim margin, as you know, and there was, uh, it was quite controversial. But so I, I know that you eat an elephant one bite at a time. They have not addressed uh, the insurance issues, uh, particularly as Detroit was discriminated against for decades. And our rates were the highest in the nation uh, for decades. And so we, it, it hasn't been adequately uh, addressed uh, by the that the legislature. So that's not just a black issue; it's a uh, Detroit issue. In terms of it being a, a black issue, the way the law is written, it allows insurance companies now 
to pick and choose. So those who are coming in, who are coming into the city and gentrifying it are now able to have their rates lower while they still continue to target African-Americans for higher rates. The same thing goes for the banking issue. The same thing goes for what we call the black tax. It costs more to live in areas of concentrated blackness. That's not done. That's done by policy. And so there are a series of policies in banking, housing, and prioritizing um, home repair dollars, et cetera, et cetera, that are not being addressed by uh, the legislature. And the other thing, the reason is important is institutional memory. Since I go back several decades, I know when, where, why, and how things were done and what can be done and who, more importantly, who uh, did it. So I know where all the bones are buried in Lansing. I want to ask about the police accountability package. You saw that start to receive hearings in 2022. Uh, It hasn't received any hearings in 2023, uh, like outlawing no-knock warrants, chokeholds under non-extreme circumstances, and tampering with body cameras. Uh, That is something that a recent survey from Progress Michigan shows has 75%. Uh, Do you feel like it's because of a lack of Black representation that that package hasn't been touched yet? Absolutely. It's a lack of uh, Black representation and skilled representation. See, because when you have uh, when 56, when you have that slim margin, no agenda, if the Black agenda is not being dr- addressed, no agenda should be dealt with. The bare bones, I don't want to say that we would hold up appropriations to stop government, but just short of that, we watch how that a small group, a very small group, in Washington was able to hold and redirect. Now I wouldn't do anything to that extreme, but everything other than basic government government functions need to be held up into the, the, the black agenda, which would include uh, the police reform and, and criminal justice reform. Until that is uh, dealt with, nothing should be dealt with other than minimal appropriation, holding the government open, but no projects get done. No policy gets done until the Black agenda gets done. We are the majority of the party of the majority. Why do you think the the Black agenda has not been pursued as vigilantly as one might think during during 2023? Because you have either a a lack of skill or a lack of will among the Black legislatures and um, and, or uh, because term limits is just now changing. So when I go back, I will be the, the, the senior, I'll have more seniority than anybody, including the speaker. So that is one of the issues. And, I, and it appears they're spending a lot of money to keep me from being able to come back. You, when we talked earlier before you joining us today, you said that you also want to talk about home repair grants. Could you tell us a little bit more about your idea when it comes to that concept? Well, the state and, and, uh, and private interest through the banks who are an insurance interest, who are largely responsible of the three entities, all three entities, the state through its policies and its gentrification and its policies for uh, removing uh, residency. Uh, I, I was there when they removed the residency requirements, uh, allowed the residency requirements to be put into law, and therefore entire groups of police and fire immediately left for sale signs went up. Houses, this area that I live in now is extremely blighted. 
and there are people who are living in homes in conditions that they cannot afford to repair these uh, older homes. So the banking and its lending practices, the insurance companies and their and their practice and overreading um, homeowners insurance, and as well as other conditions and the state's policy with the with the charter schools destroying uh, the the school uh, district, which directly affects the quality. And so we have to deal with all those issues. You either have legislators who are not committed to do to address this, or not knowledgeable. Either way, the results are the same. Well, we're running short on time here, so that's going to be the last question. Uh, so I've been covering uh, you in politics for uh, more than twenty years now, and I don't know the answer to this. I'm gonna I'm gonna lean on you for this. Um, how many times have you run for office? Uh, you know what? I don't know how many times I run. <laughs> I can tell you how many times I've been elected because you know. Uh, do you count uh, uh, my father and Betty G? No, 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 just you, just you, just you, Lamar Lemons. I, I've been elected at least 10 times to some. <laughs> no, Lamar Lemons, unfortunately, we are out of time now. We're over our 20 minute mark. But thank you so much for joining us on the MERS Monday podcast. Thank you. us for today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast is Republican U.S. Senate candidate Nikki Snyder, who is currently serving her first term on Michigan State Board of Education. Hello, Nikki. How are you doing today? Good. How are you? I am doing all right. And then we are also pre-recording this on the Saturday before the day this podcast comes out, which is kind of our first real big snow day of the year for Michigan. Yep. Stay safe. That's for sure. What are your favorite things to do on a snow day? So hole up with a book, something hot, get the kids in snow gear and get them outside. <laughs> so that sounds like a great idea. <laughs> we are specifically having Nikki Snyder on uh, because later this week on this upcoming Friday, the Northern Michigan Chamber Alliance will be hosting a policy forum featuring a U.S. Senate a U.S. Senate candidate forum that our editor Kyle Malin will be moderating. Kyle, tell us more about this forum that's taking place. Well, absolutely, Sam. We're very excited to have this um, U.S. Senate Candidate Forum at the Policy Conference on the 19th. Uh, we're going to start at 3.30. Nikki Snyder is going to be one of the uh, people who were invited and uh, is agreed to attend. Peter Meyer is also going to be there. Hill Harper, Michael Hoover. Uh, we've also invited James Craig and Mike Rogers, Sandy Pensler, and Alyssa Slotkin. And um, it, this is going to be about an hour and 15 minutes or so. It's going to be in front of around 500 uh, leaders within the business community up in northern Michigan and will also be live streamed on Channel 9 and 10 up in Traverse City. Uh, so we're expecting some good participation and, and a good exchange. And we're excited that uh, uh, Nikki Snyder is going to be among the people participating in it. So as of right now, who's expected not to attend this forum? I have to ask. Well, so we've uh, reached out to everybody. Uh, our understanding is, is that Mike Rogers is not doing 
forums or face-to-face -face meetings with other candidates. I don't know if you've heard that too, Nikki, but we have heard that that Mike Rogers just isn't doing anything on the primary front right now. Yeah, so my focus would be on attending and really reaching voters in the state of Michigan, according to the expertise that I hope to bring to the table. Um, healthcare and education are two top line items in our budget statewide and nationwide. And the policy that we make decisions on as leaders impact everyday Michiganders, right? So I hope to get in front of voters uh, and, and communicate that expertise and the things that I think that we need to change and do moving forward. So um, any candidate that will come out and reach people face to face, answer their questions, I think uh, is definitely in the running for truly representing the will of the people. Melissa Slotkin uh, has session in Congress on Friday. They have votes apparently, uh, which is why she is not expected to be there. James Craig's still a possibility. I think the big question with James Craig is if he's going to have the infrastructure to put together the 15,000 signatures needed to actually get on the ballot, uh, which did prove to be a challenge two years ago for him. And then uh, Sandy Pensler, I, I get the sense that he's running an air war and that's going to be his uh, focus. He's got a lot of resources and uh, is allowed to spend some money. I understand he's going to go up uh, fairly soon uh, with some TV buys. And so that that seems to be uh, his focus. But again, Sam, everybody's, um, you know, those four that I mentioned are all invited to attend. And uh, we hope that they're able to make it uh, the more the merrier on, on that front with uh, those four and uh, the four that we invited, which were based on uh, the results of some polling that we did, uh, that we had the results of this past week, where we looked at who is going to have a viable path to uh, get the nomination. We really wanted to just focus on those based on the polling uh, so anybody who kind of registered on the Republican side, we invited. And then on the Democratic side, it's it looks like such a blowout right now with Alyssa Slotkin, with Hill Harper showing some activities. He's raising money. He's actively going out and, and trying to get funds and, you know, trying to be a good statewide candidate. So uh, he's going to be invited as well. Mm -hmm. Nikki, how would you describe the energy right now? And what are you kind of seeing among among candidates in this Republican arena? I think that uh, Republican voters want to be able to reach their representation. They want to be able to ask questions of them. They want to be able to make statements that really reflect the priorities they want their representation to move forward with. Uh, in the forums that I've participated in, that's precisely what's happening. So you got to get yourself out there. Uh, we are going to launch an 83 county wide, I'm sorry, statewide uh, town hall tour and the first 25 dates have been announced through March. So that's precisely what we intend to do in the coming months. Now, I'm just going to drop kind of the polling that we have on this Republican primary so our listeners know. Now, it is some recent polling commissioned by us truly here at MERS and the Northern Michigan Chamber Alliance. It shows past Detroit Police Chief James Craig leading the Republican primary arena by 30 percent, former U.S. Rep Mike Rogers with 20 percent, past West Michigan U.S. Rep Peter Meyer at 11 percent, and both Michigan business executive Sandy Pensler and Nikki Snyder at 2 percent. Uh, now, Nikki, what were kind of some of your initial reactions to these poll numbers? I'm not necessarily concerned about those poll numbers. I have name recognition, both first and last. Believe it or not, Nikki Haley hanging in there in the presidential uh, process is very helpful to me. 
Um, and then of course, last name recognition, only candidate in the race that has run in one statewide before on both sides. Um, and so that's that's helpful. And one of the things you see with some of these polls is people sort of targeting um, mailers to certain areas. And then, of course, they're going to do well in in that area in polling. So you have to think about the concept of statewide leadership and the ability to get elected statewide. Again, the only candidate in the race that has done that. And where are you right now in terms of signature collection for the 15,000 needed valid signatures? We are well on our way to achieving that goal. Uh, over uh, 65 counties already have been collected. And in our town hall tour, we're going to see more and more of that. And we'll definitely be you know, turning them in on time and, and with uh, Buffer as well. Thank you. What are you seeing at the events that you're attending, uh, Republican events or other events? How often are you running into other candidates um, like James Craig or Mike Rogers, maybe Michael Hoover, maybe some of the kind of the top line candidates, are they showing up to stuff? No, you haven't seen consistent participation uh, across the board with certain candidates. But since I don't focus on what they're doing, uh, it's just not a priority of mine. I know that we were the first to announce in the in the race, uh, February of 23. And we're just going to continue to stay focused on what we're doing. Um, I wanted to also ask you about the uh, Board of Education meeting uh, this past week. You are a member of the Board of Education, and there was uh, some significant discussion about the role of school librarians uh, in schools. Give our listeners a little um, update on what happened there. So essentially, it, it comes down to disseminating sexually explicit materials to minors. And what that relates to is safety in schools. Schools need to be safe. And, and to be fair, I, I want to you know, highlight a few things that we need to do in this state um, and that we should see in public education across the country in relationship to safety in schools. It's not just about sexually explicit materials in, in school libraries, but it really is about a number of things. So required behavioral threat assessment management training in all schools, much like CPR and hospitals, is going to be, I think, one of the biggest things we can do to make schools safe. Schools should be reliable for their actions and inactions. You saw that in Oxford. There's been multiple reports, lots of conversation that needs to be had yet. We need to hit pause on all healthcare clinics. Uh, there's a sexual abuse epidemic in schools. And when you think about what it means to be a student that gets sexually abused in schools and they don't have to seek parental consent for STI or STD training, I'm sorry, testing in those healthcare clinics that are about to be implemented across the board, that's a big issue. It's a very big issue. That means that that student really has nowhere to go and there's no real accountability to the sexual abuse epidemic in schools. So then you come to the topic that we were talking about at the board this week, which is disseminating sexually explicit materials to minors. It's against the law for any other entity in our society to do that. It's a crime. And yet in schools, it's not. They don't have liability for the actions they're taking in doing so. And we've spent the last year and a half showing the public exactly what's in school libraries. And by and large, parents are not on the page of, well, I don't have uh, authority over my child while they're in school physically, that um, a school system or public education can say, this is what my child should be reading. It's a problem. It's also contributing to that environment of the sexual abuse epidemic in schools. So um, at the end of the day, 
It's about keeping schools safe for students. Now, oh. During the meeting, there was uh, some discussion about a book in particular called Gender Queer, um, which is a book that was written by an author describing the childhood that uh, that uh, the person had and um, trying to write it in kind of a graphic novel sort of way as kind of a, an education and um, kind of like a memoir to make other people who are in similar situations maybe feel a little bit more comforted that there's uh, other people out there. Is, is associating that kind of book with a Playboy, is that is that fair to do that? Well, he actually, uh, I believe you were talking about Tom McMillan. He showed gender queer in the graphic descriptions in the yeah. book. It was actually someone giving oral sex to another person. Um, yeah, I think that you should associate that messaging with pornography because that is pornography. And, and our law actually describes it as such. But you would concede that, I mean, Playboy, the intention of Playboy is to excite people. Whereas yeah. the intention of something like gender queer, that's not the intention yeah. of it. It's just kind of describing an act as part of just kind of this person's personal experience. Yeah. Our law doesn't speak to the intention in that respect. It just defines sexually explicit materials. And while that may be the intention for one group of students to expose all students to pornography in that intention is still, I would say, awry. Well, at first, I do want to say I did get a little bit confused when you were initially answering the question because you also talked about clinics. Uh, yeah. So what is what is that? What is that deal with the kind of the clinics? Are you wanting to see more clinics established at schools or? No, I think we need to hit pause significantly on that. Um, we I was just in Northville, actually, at their local school board meeting, and they are entertaining a healthcare clinic. And um, I think that when you think about what type of environment that creates for students. Like I said, if you're being sexually abused in school and you don't require parental consent to visit the school healthcare clinic, which is comprehensive, it provides comprehensive services is how this health clinic is being pitched in Northville. And that part of that is STI and STD testing. All of a sudden your parent is out of the, con the conversation equation altogether. So who really holds accountable the sexual abuse that happens in schools when we can disseminate sexually explicit materials in libraries and anybody who dissents on that is considered a book banner and we're now creating this intricate system where that student has no one really to go to but the schools themselves. Very, very dangerous. That is not safe for students. There's no doubt about it. Okay, so you're saying for both a, a ban on the release of sexual explicit materials in libraries, also a ban on clinics where you can get sexual health services on school property. Yeah, I wouldn't use ban. It's a strong word. Um, I would just say that schools should not be able to disseminate sexually explicit materials in school libraries. I think I, I, I do just kind of wonder and overall, like when we talk about sexual explicit materials, are you talking about specifically when it comes to graphic novels or what is kind of the scale that you're looking at? Are you looking at the traditional obscenity scale that we talk about while talking about the First Amendment? Uh, what, what is kind of the scale you're thinking of? So it's defined in law. And I did mention it at the State Board of Ed meeting. It's there's a definition for it, a very le a legal definition of sexually explicit materials. And so the, the same law that 
every other entity of our society has to follow and honor, schools should have to follow and honor too. Um, so we could look up that definition and apply it here. And this is not the same as uh, a sex education class that a parent has given consent for a student to take and therefore sees common imagery of reproductive health, right? This is sexually explicit materials as defined by the law. Changing the subject here a little bit, Nikki, I wanted to ask you, get your opinion on what you're seeing with the Michigan Republican Party right now uh, with the uh, the leadership, um, I guess, tumult and uh, Christina Caramo. Do you believe that she's right that that meeting that was held January 6th that removed her was not uh, in, a, in accordance with the uh, MRP bylaws? You know, I'm very much staying neutral on that arena. There's a lot of conflict. It doesn't matter what side you're on right now because things are shifting and moving so significantly. But to be a leader as you move forward in these types of situations, uh, you don't pick sides on that on that front. You lead people through the chaos and conflict. You unify them. So we have plenty of time to do that yet. And, um, you know, I will work with anybody who wants to do that. How difficult is it running for the U.S. Senate knowing that this is going on in the background? And if you are the nominee, uh, you may not have the uh, financial backing that you would need from the MRP to, to help uh, defeat uh, the Democratic candidate, whoever that is. It's not difficult to run for U.S. Senate for me right now. I know that I feel very, uh, very much qualified and ready to lead as a U.S. Senator of the state of Michigan within healthcare, education, and all the other arenas that Michiganders need representation. Uh, there's a reason why I chose to run, and we talked about that in our last podcast together. So I'm just going to stay focused on what that looks like and continue to move forward and reach voters and have town halls and communicate on the issues. Uh, financially speaking, we continue to raise the amount of money it, that's necessary to run a campaign. Who would you say are the people that are showing up to your events right now? Who is kind of the bread and butter of your volunteers and your biggest base? Thank you. <laughs> I, I say thank you to them regularly. They are really the machine that powers victory in 24 and has powered victory in the past. You, you can't win a campaign if you don't have all 83 counties and infrastructure of volunteers, of people who are willing to fight the good fight and who continue to show up. So one of the biggest messages I share with people frequently is stay engaged, keep showing up. At the end of the day, you parse through the conflict and we're still working towards the common goal of unity and good policy. So that's, you know, thank you. Yeah, but like, who are, who, who are they? You know, like, who are they? What types of professions do they come from? What are their core values? Who are they? I mean, I've met people from all across the spectrum. It doesn't just everyday Michiganders who are looking for policy to actually represent them at this point in time, especially economically speaking. I mean, Michigan, Michigan leads the nation in small business closings through the pandemic. So 40% of our small businesses closed. In healthcare, you had thousands of nurses who left because of those mandates that we put on them. They want to see a healthcare system that truly shows up in a way of above all else, do no harm. You want me to above all else, do no harm as a nurse, please above all else, do no harm against me. Um, so it, business owners, nurses, teachers, people from all walks of life have shown up and shared that they are not happy. 
they are not happy post pandemic. There's no doubt about it. That's an event that really impacted the way that people think and feel about how we're governing at this point in time in our country. So definitely uh, just stay engaged, keep showing up. Thank you. Nikki Snyder, thank you so much for joining us on today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast. Thanks, Sam. And that's going to do it for today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast. Thank you to our guest today, Executive Director Edward Woods III of the Michigan Independent Citizens Redistricting Commission and the Commission's Litigation Counsel, Catherine McKnight. Also, thank you to 13th House District Special Election Candidate Lamar Lemons III and Republican U.S. Senate Candidate Nikki Snyder. I would also like to thank MERS Editor Kyle Malin for his part in putting this episode together for the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. Post-production of the MERS Monday podcast is by Mark Bayshore Audio and Okamas. Thanks to him for putting this audio together. Additionally, thank you to AT&T for sponsoring this and all of our other podcasts. Until next time, I am Samantha Schreiber. Oh my.